This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we find out about a new plan to protect and conserve England's largest collection of historic wall paintings. So we think there are about 76 locations across the country that English Heritage has care of. And what we hope to do over the next five years is go and do an assessment of all of them. We'll hear just how much work is going to be involved in their conservation. And it's important to remember that what survives is the tiniest fraction of what once existed. They are much more fugitive and fragile than other forms of art which can be carried around. And we'll discover how a fundraising appeal will help pay for the protection of these historic artworks for the future. More from our experts Rachel Turnbull and Dr Stephen Brindle in just a few moments. But first, let's get a picture of what you can hear soon on the English Heritage Podcast. It is the first uh, official plaque that's gone up to uh, Bob Marley by English Heritage. He's a global superstar, been described as the first superstar from the developing world. This is one of those dates that every schoolboy is supposed to know, you know, and we can be very blasé about the Battle of Hastings and the Norman Conquest. And actually, if, if crowds come to this show, they will get a very good overview of the history. I think what it does quite simply is it brings this phenomenal day in English history to life. It's an amazing survival of an aristocratic townhouse. These kind of houses that used to be all over London and really Apsley House is the only surviving example of that. And it still sort of sits there in splendid isolation. Don't forget you can subscribe to get new episodes every Thursday. Now, a new project is underway at English Heritage to audit just over 70 historic wall paintings. The review is taking place to find out what conservation work is needed to make sure that these fragile and precious artworks are conserved and protected. The conservation work is being supported with a new fundraising appeal launching in September 2019. Joining us to talk about the paintings and some of the key works being conserved are Rachel Turnbull and Stephen Brindle. And if I could first ask you to both briefly describe what you do at English Heritage. So my job is Senior Collections Conservator for Fine Art, but recently, over the last year, I've been looking at managing a project to assess the 76 sites at English Heritage that have wall paintings. Stephen, what do you do? Uh, I'm Stephen Brindle. I'm a Senior Properties Historian in the Curatorial Department. Well, let's start with a definition first, Rachel, of uh, what constitutes a wall painting. A wall painting, as far as this is concerned is a painting on a fixed wall in a property usually inside in some places it may be on a ruin so technically might be outside at the moment but it's on a fixed wall and it's not something that can be moved in any way and how many wall paintings does english heritage have and how many of the earmarked for this overall project and how many locations So we think there are about 76 locations across the country that English Heritage has care of that have wall paintings. And what we hope to do over the next five years is go and do an assessment of all of them. It's a long project, five years. It is a long project, but if you think we've got to go to site for each of them and take experts with us that can assess the condition and get up close to them and and check that they're they're okay, actually five years is, is, is about right. What sort of periods are they covering, Stephen? You might know more about this. I mean, I'm thinking of the key ones, 
St Mary's, Kempley, Bolsover Castle, Farley Hungerford Castle and Lullingston Roman Villa. Roman Villa obviously gives that away. That's probably the earliest one. English Heritage looks after sites which span prehistory to the 20th century. And we have wool paintings in our care that date from Roman times. And the Lullingstone painting probably is about the earliest, well, to the 19th century. And wool paintings as a genre go back, well, ultimately into prehistory, but Roman ones would, I think, be the earliest major ones in this country. So our collection does span that whole range. I think novels and wool paintings are are really synonymous terms. In this country, in this climate, they were usually indoors. We believe that external painted schemes were sometimes used in medieval, in early modern times, but usually on temporary structures for special occasions. So normally wool paintings were internal, but they were of the greatest possible variety. And it's important to remember that what survives is the tiniest fraction of what once existed. They are much more fugitive and fragile than other forms of art which can be carried around if it's valued. A wool painting is really completely a hostage to the fortunes of its building, of its location. So what sort of styles do we have across history? So across our collection, we have a lot of sites with religious iconography. We've got um, mythical iconography. We have naturalistic iconography. And then that stretches right forward to places where we have uh, graffiti. So in Richmond cells in Yorkshire, in Richmond Castle, or in places like Brodsworth Hall um, near Doncaster, where we have a sort of trompe marbling that very accurately depicts through the whole house a, a suite of different kinds of, of marble surfaces. So it's a five-year project. There's going to be a fundraising campaign. But first, you have to do your audit or assessment. Has that started yet? So for the last year, we've been trying to develop a, a new way of looking at these 76 sites. We're going round to each site myself and then local teams and taking along with us expert wall paintings conservators to have a really good look at the paintings and make some kind of assessment about the cause of any damage that we do happen to find and the best thing to do really is to find out the cause of damage and fix that first and then we can move on to looking at conserving the paintings themselves. And what are the main causes of damage to a wall painting? We've, we've talked briefly about elements, uh, the elements, you know, rain, wind, etc. What other problems are there? So the building structures themselves, if there's water ingress, um, the environmental conditions in terms of relative humidity within a building can cause all sorts of local phenomenon. Um, certainly at Lullingston, we have been in the past concerned about Uh, microbial growth that's been caused by high RH potentially, but we need to investigate that further. Sorry, relative humidity is RH, yeah. Okay, we've learned that one. That's a new one for me. Conservator talk. Um, (laughs) It could be intrinsic to the technique of the wall paintings themselves. I mean, it just could be that the technique hasn't survived very well over the years. So the the initial paint that was put down was not strong enough or thick enough to withstand the test of time, perhaps. Yeah, sure. And it cannot just be the technique that the that the paintings themselves are made up of. It could be the kind of wall that the plaster is built on or the kind of mortar that the stones or the bricks are put together with. That could have an effect on how well or not these things have survived. I suppose the artists who did these centuries ago didn't really think about that. They just got their paintbrushes out and that was that. I think it's normal for artists and patrons to think in terms of their own lifetimes and maybe that of their children. 
but not really expectant there hundreds of years later, so we can hardly blame them for that. And there are other important cultural factors, of course, in relation to survival, religious factors. In medieval Christianity used painted imagery very extensively to teach the populace, most of whom were illiterate, the principles of the Christian faith. And then as literacy spread, the Reformation in the 16th century was overtly hostile to the use of images, believing it to amount to the worship of images. Uh, And so throughout England in the 16th century, there was actually an act for the defacing of images passed by Edward VI government in 1550. And all over England, religious schemes of, of art were whitewashed over deliberately. And the paintings at Kempley Church, for instance, which were done in the 12th century, and some in the 14th were then whitewashed over in the 16th century and uncovered in the 20th century. So we're lucky that we've even got most of these paintings. Well, there are paradoxical factors here. In the 16th century, most of the stained glass in England was smashed, and a great part of the medieval portable painting, altarpieces and panel paintings, was destroyed, burnt for religious reasons. But wall paintings couldn't be destroyed so readily. Sometimes the faces were defaced deliberately, but more generally they were painted over. And actually, rather ironically, this had the effect of preserving them. But in the case of Kempley, it was a painting that was already 300 years old when it was uncovered. And then there are also considerations of changes in taste and in fashion. At Kempley, for example, we have 12th century paintings in the chancel and 14th century paintings in the nave. At Farley Hungerford, where there's a church which functioned as a private chapel, we have schemes of painting in the same building from the 14th, 17th and 19th centuries. And in some areas... The 19th century painting overlies the 17th century painting. So changes of fashion come into play here, with a previous scheme of painting being deemed to be out of date, so it gets painted over. And that raises other kind of rather interesting ethical issues and also conservation problems. It's challenging Farley, particularly because you have all of mm. these layers of different ages of, of, of paint and you can see little bits poking out from underneath more recent layers. And it's, it's incredibly yeah. tempting to find out what might be underneath, but it's quite mm. a difficult thing to do and you certainly wouldn't be taking off the, the later layers to uncover the earlier ones. So, so is it difficult to decide which era of history you're going to reflect in the sort of conservation restoration? I think certainly in the case of Farley, we preserve it all, knowing that there are earlier layers there, but not pretending that we're going to take off the later layers. And there are areas definitely at Farley that haven't been uncovered, that have got nothing on top. So there are decorative areas. I was there a couple of weeks ago and there are decorative areas in the broader chapel space which haven't been uncovered yet and and potentially could be but that would only be ever undertaken after a great deal of study to establish that you weren't removing anything in intervening generations. How many sites have you visited so far? I think I've visited about eight so far. We will have done about 14 by the end of this summer and then we will progress and do sort of 12 or 13 or 14 over the next four years. How do you prioritise? <laughs> Is there a triage sort of <laughs> method? Well, this, for this year, it was very much let's pick a selection of places across the country that have some 
really significant and important survivals. So let's go to the places where we know that they're substantial remains and that they're really uh, significant of international quality, if you like. Bolsover Castle seems to be the one that uh, is a key one to make sure it's, it's looked after. One of your favourites, Stephen? It's probably our biggest and most complex assemblage of wall paintings. Bolsover Castle was built initially as a sort of retreat, a pleasure house, by Sir Charles Cavendish in the, in the 16-teens and was inherited by his son William Cavendish, Earl and later Marquis of Newcastle, who was a great, um, a brilliant figure at the court of Charles I, a rather butterfly-minded sort of man with interest in lots of different things, uh, a sort of a pleasure-loving aristocrat, and he decorated his father's house, which is like a sort of fantasy castle, with mural paintings in several of the rooms, which have rather complex mythological and allegorical subjects relating to the Neoplatonism, that is, the uh, the philosophy of that era when there's an essentially magical view of the world, the era before the scientific revolution. And so in the first room that you come into, for example, the anteroom has images of the four humours, the four temperaments of man, the phlegmatic, the choleric, uh, the sanguine. These temperaments, these humours, are they going to be on the list of conservation? How do they look at the moment, if you could describe it for listeners? There are some issues there, but they're broadly stable. And in the first instance, that's really what we do they look quite establish. bold? They're quite bold, Because if you yeah, compare it to uh, St Mary's Kemperley, they look pretty faded. Yeah. Um, obviously, they're a lot older. They're, they're in um, what I assume to be an oil medium. So they're mm. quite vivid compared to a lot of the, okay. of the earlier paintings that we care for. They're not in bad condition, although there are some problems that we need to address. You can see a kind of haze of blanching in places that reflects where the mortar is, I think, on the wall structure beneath and quite what's going on there. We perhaps need to establish, but um, yeah, no, they're they're pretty. But the colours are quite, yeah. colours quite colours distinct. Bright. Yeah, yeah. Got yeah. reds and greens and blues. I think they're oranges. And then there's also, which we noted when we were on site, a painted vault as well on the ceiling, which makes the space more dramatic. Higher up in the castle, there's what was the Marcus of Newcastle's bedchamber, and opening off it, there are two closets. A closet would be a space either for storing valuables or for private conversation with intimate friends, or just like a private study. The heaven closet has a frieze of cherubs holding the instruments of the passion, that is the instruments with which Christ was tormented and crucified. And on the ceiling, bizarrely, as you might think, in a Protestant country, there is an image of the ascension of Christ. There is a choir of angel musicians, and in the centre you can just see the figure of Christ who is drawn up to heaven, but sadly, we have problems with, at least in heaven, there, don't we, Rachel? <laughs> yeah, we do. Unfortunately, there's been um, a problem with water ingress from the roof structure, which we're in the process of sorting out. There's a project that's going to be going on there in the near future to fix that. But we do need to go up there quite urgently and fix some blown plaster. And that's coming in into the ceiling it's itself? coming in from above and exactly quite what's happening and, and where that water's coming from. We need to do a little bit more investigation, but um, I, I think we'll be up there quite soon doing some work. So which is the project that gets 
the number one billing? Gosh, that's very difficult. So as we're going around all these different sites, we're scoring the paintings between one and four, and one is in good condition and stable, and four is in poor condition and unstable. And we will then have to sit down at the end of this summer when we've been to the first sort of 12 or 13 sites and decide where and what we need to do, basically. So it will be a process that's ongoing. And it also slightly depends on on what the cause of the issue is. If it's a very quick fix, then perhaps it's something we can do sooner. If it's more complex, we might need to pause and do some monitoring and do some investigative works. We're not going to be rushing in and doing anything when we don't fully understand exactly what's happening. We've talked briefly about some of these works which need to be restored and conserved. Have there been previous restorations in the past prior to English heritage coming into the care of these places? Yeah, they have. Different people have worked on them over the years. If we go um, back in time, conservation was a developing profession and the materials and techniques that people have used have sometimes fared really well and they did an excellent job However, it is true that in some cases, we now know with hindsight that the materials that they used are not necessarily doing an awful lot of good to the paintings. There's a lot of use of wax coatings in different places and other materials. Possibly there is a material at Kempley that is causing a minute degradation to the surface of the paint. And one of the first things that we would like to do at Kempley is an assessment of how ubiquitous the use of this particular material is and to establish whether it is indeed possible to remove it to prevent the deterioration. The general sense at Kempley, I think, from looking at these pictures on the table here to my left, is that so it's almost got a sepia tone to it. Stephen and I were talking mm. about this um, a bit before we started recording, that the, that the use of, of pigments possibly lends a certain palette to what mm-hmm. we have surviving from this kind of period, this medieval period in a broad sense, yeah. and a lot of use of earth pigments. So the earth pigments are literally pigments derived from the earth, the ground, ground. Mm. so clays. So we have yellows and ochres and reds, and therefore they have this kind of pinkish quality in certain instances. Certainly at Farley Hungerford, the whole scheme has a pinkish underlayer, we think. And in the past, that has possibly been misunderstood where the upper whiter paint layers have degraded. People have seen the pink peering from below and have perhaps over-restored in that colour palette in a way that were we to restore that painting today we wouldn't do so he is rather pinker there's a big knight at Farley Hungerford at the front of the church and um, he, how tall? He's, he's huge I don't know how tall he <laughs> no. is, he's about nine foot something okay. like that, yeah, he's, he's large he's a very large knight, quite dramatic who sadly has lost his feet and um, actually one of the other things that we'll be doing this winter is investigating the structure of the wall around him there's obviously been historic problems in that area where there's been plaster loss over, over a long period of time and we want to try and establish what's going on and, and what's happening. And we have a couple of techniques that we want to try out over the winter months to see if we can find out what's going on in the wall behind him and if there perhaps is a void associated with a previous chimney that no, no longer is there Um, Uh when there was a building on the other side of the wall, which is now an outside courtyard, but in the past would have been an interior space. So So um, I think what builders might refer to as a cold bridge. 
I think that might be it. Yes, exactly. Uh, and which we need... causes sort of uh, mould on the other side yes, of the wall. Yes, yes. So the details of quite how that mechanism works scientifically, I couldn't explain to you. Mm. All I know is that we took the bit of kit we took with us a couple of weeks ago to see if it would work in the summer. And as our scientists had predicted, it didn't work in the summer. So we need to go back in the winter months when it's cooler and then we might be able to pick up with some infrared technology, pick up, avoid if it's there. You've got lots of gadgets then. Humidity detectors and... Yeah, infrared can, in different ways, can possibly detect a a void if there's a difference in in temperature. Infrared can also be used analytically to look at how these things were made, how the paintings were made, looking at underlayers or, for example, we might like to try it at Richmond Castle to see if we can clarify the legibility of some of the inscriptions and also we've talked about the different layers of wall paintings that you can get at different sites. And at Richmond Castle, we also know that there are layers of graffiti that were subsequently covered up and then more graffiti happens over the top and whether or not we might be able to pick up the layers beneath. Yeah, so we can use kit to help with condition and we can use scientific techniques to look at the original manufacture of these things. How do you assemble your crack team of conservators? Who's <laughs> who's going to be doing this massive five-year project? On site for this summary condition audit, which is what we're grandly calling it, it will be myself or one of our local conservation teams alongside specialist wall paintings conservators. So I am a conservator, but my specialism is in easel painting. So that's paintings, movable paintings on panel or canvas. Conservation training is incredibly specific and you really only know how to work on the particular material type that you're trained in. So I will be going to site or my colleagues will be going to site with specialist wall paintings conservators. So they're the people that have really trained in in these materials and understand the interaction between the building and the wall structure and the various different issues that, that may occur. And what we want to do is understand degradation and fix the causes of that degradation and preserve them. They're very vulnerable, as we've discussed, to things going wrong with the building, to the environment within these buildings, which are often incredibly difficult to control from that point of view. If you think of controlling the environment in a castle, it's it's nigh on impossible. So we have to think of clever ways, if we think environment is an issue, to try and mitigate damage that's being, being caused by that, if, if, if that's the case. Our great concern is to hand them on no worse than they came to us. It's not a very exciting-sounding brief, but it's very important. Um, It's about slowing time. Slowing the ageing process and handing them on no worse than when we found them. As Rachel has said, there has been conservation work, very well-meaning work on the Kempi paintings, which may have harmed them. So, yeah, as the doctors say, first do no harm is kind of important too. Yes, we're trying to look after these things. They're incredibly rare survivals across the country and and we need to make sure that they're still there when we're long gone. It's, It's a real responsibility, isn't it? Massive responsibility and we take it really seriously which is why we're undertaking this process and looking at all of these sites Mm. it's not an easy thing to do and we've got to put a lot of resource into it but I think it's incredibly worthwhile that these little bits of color that we have certainly in the medieval sites we have these little bits of color from a time that we can only imagine what it would have been like for the people there and we don't want to lose this limited evidence Mm. through neglect absolutely it's precious and it's finite 
and in many cases what we have is only a, a small thriving fragment. Looking at the overall project again, zooming out, why is now the right time to start on this five-year mission? I mean, I think we just have to start, don't we? And Well, the English Heritage Trust, the English Heritage Charity, came into existence four years ago. English Heritage as an institution was born in 1984, but that was created from all the sites which had been vested in the guardianship of the Crown, either because they were already Crown property or in many cases, like all of the ones we've been talking about, they were in private ownership and their owners could not reasonably be expected to go on looking after these nationally important monuments, which couldn't really be used in their original use or used commercially anymore. So the state has seen responsibility and now English Heritage has responsibility for these buildings which are historically precious, but which can't be used in a sort of normal economic way. And the burden of maintaining them is something huge. And in many cases, there's been masonry conservation and masonry structural repairs to keep things standing, which have been prioritised. And I think that's partly why it's taken us a while to get around to the wall paintings, because we have these long-term conservation programmes, and they tend to prioritise like big things. If um, a wall is in danger of collapse, then you go to that, and we have cycles of other kinds of maintenance. But we now really feel it's essential that we address these issues, which don't affect the structural integrity of the buildings, but they affect these precious surviving paintings. It it comes back to what we've alluded to before, is that you need Mm. to fix the cause of the damage first. There's no point spending money on wall paintings conservation if you haven't fixed Mm. any structural problems that are causing that damage. So the big projects fix the structural problems and then we can move forward. It's also fair Mm. to say that there was a national audit of the condition of these wall paintings in the mid-90s and what we're going to build on is it's time to revisit that. To really. revisit that, and I think what we would like to do, should this prove successful as a project, is then revisit them on a more regular basis. And in an ideal world, we'd like to revisit each site every five years on a rolling basis. But we'll see how we go. This is a developing project. We've only started it this year, and we'll see what happens. And if it's effective and we can resource it, then we will continue to look at these things regularly. How can visitors and members help? By joining English Heritage. It's <laughs> one uh, thing. By, by visiting our site and visiting our webpage and by subscribing to supporters if you feel inspired to. Yeah, and I think, um, I think we'll be, there'll be a fundraising campaign that we'll be launching in the autumn. If people, as Stephen said, feel inspired to want to, to look after these things, that they can donate money to help him mm. in, in whatever small way that they feel that they can. And a final word about why it's so important to look after this history, sometimes ancient history. These are unique survivals of the lives and the beliefs and the worldview of people in the past. They're irreplaceable and once gone, they're gone forever. Yeah, they're, as, as Stephen said, very rare, really important that we make sure they're still there when we're long gone. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To find out more about how you can help support our conservation programme, head to the Support Us section of the English Heritage website. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. See you next time.